This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of October 13th, 2014, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 201 of Defender Radio. I can barely believe it's been a full year since this project first started. In that year, we've had dozens of interviews with internationally recognized scientists and advocates. We've heard one-on-one interviews from those who have witnessed tragedy and those who have stopped cruelty. We've worked with great people like psychologist and beaver believer Dr. Heidi Perryman, rock star and animal lover Biff Naked, photographer Joanne MacArthur, and Leslie Sampson of Coyote Watch Canada. We've talked about issues ranging from wolf ecosystem protection and the natural history of beavers to keeping squirrels out of attics and how to talk about coexistence with your schools. And through it all, we've had you, our incredible supporters, listening in. I speak on behalf of everyone from APFO when I say, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. And what better way to start Season 2 of Defender Radio than with two of our absolute favorite guests. We'll be hearing from Brad Gates, owner of AAA Gates Wildlife Control on Raccoons in Toronto, why they're here and how we can live alongside them, as well as Dr. Mark Beckoff discussing his upcoming book, Rewilding Our Hearts. Let's get started with Season 2. Not only is he the title sponsor of Defender Radio and a great friend of fur-bearing animals and urban centers, but Brad Gates and his company, AAA Gates Wildlife Control, is on the leading edge of humane wildlife removal. Since Toronto's Mayor Rob Ford announced his concerns over raccoons, the furry critters have become a talking point in the upcoming municipal election. Are raccoons our friends or foes? Can we peacefully live with them? What should we do when they get into our homes? All these questions and more were answered in our recent interview with Brad Gates. Toronto is known in many ways as a raccoon city. Um, What is it about Toronto that has led to this seeming abundance of raccoons? Mother Nature controls wildlife populations by the availability of food and shelter. And Toronto, primarily because of its green bin um, program is providing raccoons with more than enough food. What would normally take a raccoon a week to find the amount of food in one green bin, it can sustain itself by just tipping over a single bin. So because the abundance of food is available, they tend to breed at a higher rate. In the wild, they'll only give birth to two or three babies because that's all that they can support. But in the city, the average litter size that we see is five, six, and sometimes seven. Wow. And the other contributing factor is shelter. And one of the the latest things that roofers have um, gone towards is installing plastic roof vents in place of the the old-style metal vents. So raccoons and squirrels, but all animals, are finding it easy to gain entry into a, a rooftop simply by either chewing away at the plastic vent, or in some cases they just peel off the lid, and in literally uh, one to three minutes, they've found a place to live. So until the city and homeowners address those two problems, um, we're going to continue to see raccoon numbers increase in the city. 
I think it's important to note, too, that raccoons are known as a vector species um, by many people involved in wildlife. But that does not mean raccoons are a disease-ridden animal that are going to bring Ebola to our backyards. Uh, is that something that people, in your experience dealing with homeowners, don't quite seem to understand that the mere presence of a raccoon does not mean disease is pending? You know, most of our customers simply want the problem solved and it's not because they see the raccoon as a, a, a disease uh, festering animal. Um, there are concerns with the raccoon feces but through education uh, homeowners can address having feces in and around their property but um, no, from my experience my customers in particular are not afraid of the raccoons passing disease on to themselves. So that sounds sort of like something the politicians might be uh, uh, exact, uh, exaggerating a little bit when they're speaking to the media. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, Rob Ford, before uh, his diagnosis, um, was was being quite vocal about raccoons. John Tory has been relatively mute on the subject. He's mostly saying we'll deal with it when we deal with it. And Olivia Chow has come out and said she wants to look at humane options. Um, but again, there just seems to be a lot of misinformation in the media about this situation. Whereas speaking with you for five minutes, I know more now than I did five minutes ago. Um, is, is that something that you're finding important in dealing with, with customers you go out to see, but even those who just call your office? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the comments that was made by Rob Ford is that he was being confronted by raccoons when he puts his garbage out at night. Now, the number one rule in my mind is not to put your garbage out the night before garbage pickup because you are making it accessible to raccoons. And sure, if I was a raccoon, I would sit at the curb waiting for that bin if I knew it was coming on garbage day. So it, uh, a bit of misinformation. I think um, certainly Mayor Ford could uh, adjust his habits and prevent any confrontation or any um, scene of raccoons if he simply put his garbage out before pickup in the morning and, and not do it when uh, the raccoons are most hungry. And when we were at Toronto Veg Fest uh, earlier in September, obviously this issue was coming up quite a bit. And we were also recommending to people uh, to, you know, do the garbage in the morning to make sure all of your waste is secure. But what are some of the other things people should be looking around their home for in terms of keeping the raccoons from hanging out in their yards? Um, at this time of the year, a lot of the um, fruit-bearing trees are, are dropping. Um, you have apples and peaches and pears that are hitting the ground, and certainly it's a good idea to get those cleaned up and not let them ferment and rot on the ground because that's going to bring the raccoons in and squirrels. Um, look at their decks as a potential source of uh, uh, habitat or a uh, place for them to want to live. If the deck is vulnerable, um, then to certainly to screen the perimeter would, would keep them off the property. Um, and again, what you said about the, the green bin, unfortunately a lot of homes in Toronto don't have the luxury of having a garage to put their green bins into to keep it secure. Um, and they keep it at the side door, which the raccoons recognize it's there. They know it's easy to open and, and will certainly target it. But for those homeowners that don't have um, a place to put it, maybe to purchase a, a lockable um, mini shed that it could go in. All these things, the, animal, the raccoons are only looking for uh, a food source. 
And if they're going to find one, they're going to come back night after night. And if you can remove it, then they'll they'll certainly go elsewhere to, to find that food. All right. And uh, the, the final question on this one is, is something we have talked about frequently in the past and to me is of vital importance for homeowners to be aware of. Uh, again, during our discussions with Toronto residents, a lot of people were saying, well, I think the raccoons might be getting in my house. What should I do? Now, I was always saying, you know, we are not experts in wildlife removal, contacts, AAA gates, and uh, get them out to your place. But what do people need to know if they think wildlife has made its way into their home, such as a raccoon, before they start calling people to try and get a solution? One thing that they need to keep in mind is that the industry is not licensed, and there are a lot of companies that are inexperienced and uneducated about wildlife, and that simply by calling um, and hiring the first company that they find um, could put them in, in, in a position where they're not getting their problem solved. So certainly look for companies that have been in business for a good length of time, um, companies that are able to answer simple questions about biology and behavior, and to give you a clear-cut method on how they're going to solve the problem. And that problem should not be solved by the use of traps. One-way doors are common uh, now. Uh, however, not all companies know how to use them and certainly don't monitor them once they're put on the house. So it's it's really taking the time, as you would, to hire a roofer or a plumber or an electrician um, to ask the questions and settle on a company that uh, you feel most comfortable with. And it never hurts to get referrals from humane societies, animal services, or any uh, wildlife welfare type groups because they're, they should be in the know as to which companies are, are doing um, humane work as opposed to work that might involve just making money. To learn more about Brad Gates, his work, or get in touch with AAA Gates Wildlife Control, visit GatesWildlifeControl.com or call 877-750-9453. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at GatesWildlifeControl.com or call 416-750-9453. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride. Find out more at ArrivaLive.org. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. 
Millions of animals are killed for their fur each year in Canada. You can help stop the cruelty. Join the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals today and be the voice for those who can't speak for themselves. Find out more at furbearerdefenders.com. This is Defender Radio. A great friend of animals, animal advocates, and APFA, Dr. Mark Beckoff is one of the world's greatest minds in the field of anthrozoology. The best-selling author of numerous books and the writer of a popular Psychology Today blog on animal emotions, Dr. Beckoff is now promoting his most recent book, Rewilding Our Hearts, Building Pathways of Compassion and Coexistence is a look at the very real problems facing our world, the role of humans in these issues, and how we can look at solving them. Dr. Beckoff joined us recently for an exclusive talk about this book and why writing it was so important to him. I found it very interesting. I've, I've read most of your non-scientific um, works, so I, sh I should say your, your non-educational material type ones, not the textbooks and things like that. Um, so all of your popular books. Um, and this one to me felt like it was a bit of a move away from what you traditionally do. It felt as though there was a more of a macro look at things as opposed to the micro look that you typically take. What was, what was the inspiration behind doing that? There's only so many ways that you can slice out that, you know, animal, I'm going to say animals, non-human animals, you know, have rich and deep emotions and that they're smart and moral. And I mean, that message is out there supporting data coming in almost every day from, you know, the science. And so, you know, in all honesty, it wasn't like I was tired of writing about animals. I write about them constantly in my psychology today thing, but I really, um, I just wanted a broader essay. I'm really glad that you see that because that really was um, our intention, was to really get out there and to, um, to write a sort of a grand scale book. This is not my, um, it's not my swan song, mm. <laughs> but, no, but in all honesty, I'm so glad you you picked that up because really that was my intention to write a book that's got a lot of, that's really broad and that will have, I think, a lot of appeal to a broad audience. And it's not only about, you know, animals, it's about their homes. Yeah, and that's... um uh, the way I kind of looked at this, and I think the way I termed it in my blog uh, review of the book, is that it's kind of Mark Beckoff's plan for saving the world. Um, because, well, and, and again, as we've already said, a lot of your books typically focus on individual non-human animals or our interactions with them or the communication and trying to sort of show on that one-on-one -on -one level how how we need to protect these animals. Uh, and right. why we why they deserve our protection but this book it's really it's it's taking a step back and saying it's it's so much more than that and you even uh you you have a chapter called um it's not about us right and that sort of is something that plays throughout this um so how was that for you i mean the writing process taking kind of that different direction and uh, trying to provide a much larger picture. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I I really have been writing this book for years. In fact, 
it was going to be done about two years ago and my publisher and I talked about it and I said, you know, Jason, my editor, Jason Gardner, <laughs> I just said, you know, I'm not ready. Um, I'm not ready to finish this book right now. And I had had a number of people, publishers asked me about compiling my psychology today essays into a book. And I love working with Jason and new world library. So I bounced it off of Jason and he said, yes, let's just do it. I mean, it wasn't even, uh, there wasn't five seconds of hesitation. But then Jason and I talked about it, you know, publishers are interested in marketing and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but so, you know, authors should be interested in marketing too. So Jason said, you know, let's just get the Why Dogs Hump book out. People love your essays. They're very popular and take one more year. And I love it. I mean, it was really something I needed and it was something that meant a lot to me to get his support. And you know, if you'll see a good number of the references are, um, papers and art, you know, various articles, uh, some new data <clears throat> that appeared <clears throat> in the last year. So, so it was a really good move. Um, I think, um, and you're right. It, like I said, it's not my swan song, but I'm really, I really, really like the book and I really mean that. And it's, it's doing well. And, um, I, I, I find people to just be really, be receptive, you know, to the broad skills ideas. And as I point out, if rewilding has become all the rage, as I mentioned, I, it's a quote, um, you know, from an article in New Scientist magazine. Um, and then there's a number of books out that have rewilding in their title, sub, most of the subtitle and stuff. So we'll see, but I'm, I'm guardedly optimistic. <laughs> well, I am as well. I, I consumed the book in one long afternoon. Um, Granted, I, I, I sit and read a lot. Uh, that's part of my job, as you know, but I really enjoyed it. It was, um, it was one long stream of consciousness to me. Um, sort of like a conversation of as I would think of a question, you would be responding to it, which I really enjoy in the book because it makes it in, like I said, it's, it's an easy to digest book, but it really does provide some of these large scale questions and you don't propose to know the answers to everything which i also find very refreshing but you do pose the questions in such a way that make the reader think how can i do something about this yeah um no i, I so appreciate um that you you got it i mean I, and i really mean that because that once again was the intent i don't have all the answers no one's got all the answers i mean we know we have to change our ways i mean there, there's you know there's no doubt about that and, you know, one answer, of course, is to add empathy and compassion to the world. But that's kind of like, that's, you know, that's, I don't even, not a band-aid approach because it's, it's more than that. But adding more empathy and compassion is kind of like the obvious thing. The question is how you do it. And, and one of the messages that I really wanted to get out, and I think we did, was that, <clears throat> Everybody can do something, and I say everybody guardedly because, you know, as I point out in the book, there's just a lot of people who, 
are, you know, they're just trying to live from day to day. I mean, they, and so they can't do anything, you know? And so it's the people who have the capability of doing something. You know, I call them the ha- sort of the haves and the have-nots. You know, they're the people, or maybe I should say we're the people who really need to get out and make the difference that we can. So, um, yeah, I really appreciate your, I'm glad you, um, I'm glad you picked up <laughs> that message. <laughs> well, now, now I'm going to uh, bother you with a question that rolled around in my uh, brain. Is you, And you and I have talked about compassionate conservation in the past, the whole concept. Um, and in the book, you describe the need to look at the individual over the species. And remember, in every decision that we are talking about individual sentient animals. But by the same token, you also point out that, and, and this is more of a scientific statement, I think, that we can't save everyone or everything. That it's it's not realistic to believe we can. And it's it's the same as saying we can't go back to what the Earth was like 200 years ago. It just can't be done. So there's, there, right. there's a bit of a contradiction in those two statements. How do you reconcile um, that issue? Well, you know, we're going to have to make some really, really difficult choices. I mean, once again, you know, that's a no-brainer. I'm not the only person saying that. I do think on the one hand, though, you know, that I'm one of the few people, there's a couple of conservation biology types, but I think I'm really one of the few people who's honestly facing that head on. Regrettably, we're not going to be able to do everything we need to do. So what can we, you know, how do we make these hard choices? So once again, what I'm trying to do is pull people out of their comfort zones, as I call it, you know, not, not in a malicious way, but to say, we're not going to be able to do everything that we need to do. So what kind of choices are we going to make? You know, and one of the things I wanted to point out in there, and it's already been focused on by um, a number of people, is that, you know, maybe it's the non-charismatic animals that we have to focus on, like the ants. I've got a great quote in there from the, you know, noted... Um, yeah, I guess I'd call him a conservation biologist, but he's, more, he's much more than that. E.O. Wilson, you know, basically, um, saying that, you know, we can save all the, um, charismatic animals like wolves, but really the animals who count very much are the ants and insects. And, you know, Wilson basically says, and it's something with which I totally agree that, you know, Wolves are important. They're really, you know, they're cool. They need animals, blah, 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 blah. But the fact of the matter is, is if we don't save animals like ants, then ecosystems are going to fold. And so, you know, so once again, I think it's the kind of thing that we know, but we don't like to maybe admit to that we're, we're attracted to animals like wolves and coyotes and bears, you know, the the charismatic megafauna. Mm -hmm. Well, and I guess that also, though, gets discussed when you talk about um, 
uh, and I believe the term you use is no kill, which is which is often used in the animal shelters, but it's taking a nonviolent approach. So whenever there's conflict, whenever there's a question, we should and must look at answers that do not require killing first. So that's not to say let's kill the wolves or continue to kill wolves and focus entirely on ants. Oh, right. It's, Let's find solutions for living with wolves, but remember we also need to protect the ants. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. Right. I'm just, you know, once again, just trying to say, look, you know, we really need to get out the word that all animals count. You know, and people go, well, you know, what about suffering? Well, you know, we're not clear about ants, but there's so many interesting studies coming out, um, like the subtitle... Uh, or the title of my book, Why Dogs Hump and Bees Get Depressed. You know, the bees get depressed thing pick up, picks up a lot of real interest from people. You know, it turns out bees can get depressed just like humans can get depressed and show the very same neurobiological changes, neurochemistry, um, changes in serotonin, uh, the, uh, the parts of the brain that get, um, stimulated. And so what's really cool about it is that we're learning that animals who we, you know, thought otherwise couldn't get, you know, depressed, couldn't, couldn't feel joy, couldn't, didn't have rich emotional lives, in fact do. And so, you know, once again, for people who want to, you know, play the sentience card, then that's fine. And they may be surprised to find that there's so many animals who we thought weren't sentient and weren't conscious who are. And that uh, leads nicely into one of the things I, I really enjoyed is you make the points, um, and it's it's almost a counterpoint to a lot of what's being talked about. And I'm guilty of this myself, uh, saying that science doesn't have all the answers. And while economics is an important argument to have, we can't rely solely on that to win the day either. Exactly. And that's, that's another major point I'm trying to say. And it's not anti-science. In fact, I'm writing an essay for a magazine now, and they're concerned it won't be sciency enough, if you will. <laughs> and, and I think that that's a great point. Well, the fact of the matter is, the rewilding paradigm has a lot to say about science, or science has a lot to say about the rewilding paradigm in the fact that science is showing that we're inherently optimistic um, mammals. Science is showing that we're inherently good mammals. And so that's, you know, that's something that um, once again, also that I'm thrilled about is that the science is showing all the things that, you know, I'm playing off of our inherent optimism, our inherent goodness. And once again, you know, people go, oh, well, isn't that overblown? No, it's not. The work of Daka Keltner, for example, in, uh, at Berkeley on how we're born to be good is showing very conclusively that, nope, we're not playing off of, you know, sort of, you know, I don't know what the word is. We're not playing off of fiction. We're really playing off of the fact that we know a lot about ourselves from scientific research and we can use those data in the rewilding um, paradigm. And also the other thing that you just said, you know, how we're going to have to make choices. It's scientists, you know, really, excuse me, first-rate um, conservation biologists who are saying right out, 
it's unlikely that we're going to save everything. We we can't save everything, Mike. I mean, there's, you know, and that's not a, and you know, once again, people go, oh, Mark, you're the most optimistic person in the world. How can you say that? It's the real view. It's not a matter of being optimistic or pessimistic. Really, the real view is we're not going to be able to save every animal and every, if you will, habitat or, you know, that's, or landscape that needs help. And, and in fact, you know, I talk about it in there, a study that showed that I think the number was 56%. And I've been told that it's really growing that 56% of, you know, conservation biologists who have been polled agree straight on that we're going to have to make hard choices. And I think that's, you know, it's a chapter titled Making Tough Choices. So so it's a real view. I mean, I, you know, I can go on and on. Um, it's something I'm really passionate about, that everybody who can make a difference needs, needs to do something right now. And it doesn't have to be founding a movement. You know, it can be as simple as, you know, doing something for your neighbor. Um, it can be doing something like, you know, driving a little less, um, adopting dogs from um, shelters. You know, I know that's a contentious issue with some people, but adopting dogs from shelters and not buying dogs from breeders. And I know people have very, very strong feelings about this, but that's another way we can do it. Yep. And my dog, who is watching me talk to you right now, is very glad she was adopted. Um, <clears throat> now, the... It, it is clear in this book that you're very passionate about this issue. That comes across first and foremost. Um, but there, there is that hard reality check throughout the book that we're not going to be able to save everything. We're going to have to look at compromises on some issues, uh, which for a lot of us in the animal welfare community is kind of the end of the world in, you know, pun not intended. Um, but you also end the book on an incredibly inspirational note. So how important is it like to, to still take this realistic view of the world around us, recognize we can't save everything, recognize that we're never going to be what we once were, but there is hope. Well, I think part of that is just looking at the dynamic into the future, saying that, you know, as people say, we, we may not be able to return to the good old days, but that's okay. We need to look into the future. So the hope is that we'll do the best we can with what we have. And I don't mean with what we have in a negative way either. It, we'll just do the best we can in the future with the ecosystems and with the animals who we have. I mean, you know, you can't go back as we age. You know, you, you can't go, I'm saying this sort of tongue in cheek, you know, because People might disagree, but, you know, you can't go back in time. You know, we age every day we get older. That doesn't mean that there's something bad about getting old, but things change, life changes. We get older, and, you know, in terms of the environmental move, we can hope we say, we can, we can hope that we can say we also get wiser. And so things change. Car model changes. Toothpaste change. I was telling somebody that, you know, if you go back and look at toothpicks, they change. And, and I really mean that. So there's nothing wrong, you know, with saying that we can't go back to what things were. We can't go back to 
to ecosystems the way they were. We can't go back to the fauna who we've had and, you know, hope that we can have all those animals back. We're going to lose animals. And once again, that's, that's not a pet. It's, it's not a pessimistic assessment. It's reality. We're losing animals at an unprecedented rate. We're losing their homes at an unprecedented rate. Well, that's just part of who we are in the world. You, at the end of your book, get very, very personal, um, which again, it, while you will often inject yourself into your blogs and your articles and your essays, this one is kind of more at home and it's talking about, you know, and it really does address the question, how do you get up every day when you know all of this is going on? Um, and that's something that we often talk about is burnout and the depression and all of that kind of stuff that can come when we spend so much time looking at the pain in the world. So what what's kind of the, the brief version of what people need to remember when they're at the end of the day, they've been talking about this, they've been watching videos or reading blogs about animals in distress and the planet in distress? Well, <laughs> I make my living, if you will, by knowing and wishing that I could be put out of work, of course, um, by knowing that there's a lot of work that needs to be done to make the world a better place. And so one of the things that drives me, and I, you know, I, you were so kind to include me in an article you were writing, is I, I work very hard, I play hard, and I rest hard, and I really mean it when I rest, I get away from things. When we get off the phone, I'm going to go out for a 100-kilometer bike ride, and I will think about things as I ride. I mean, it's hard to, it's almost impossible, you know, to not think about things. Um, and I focus on the positive, because when I travel, I meet the most amazing people doing the most amazing things. And so there's where a lot of my hope comes is I meet people who are going that extra mile, as they put it, and, you know, stepping out of their comfort zones and making a difference. Um, I also know that if we don't all work hard, once again, those of us who have that, the luxury, because it's a luxury to be able to, you know, put time into your day to make the world a better place for yourself and other human and animal beings um, is, you know, just showing people once again, how simple it is. Just, it's incredible how little it really takes to, um, to do things that will make the world a better place. Rewilding Our Hearts will be available on November 11th, 2014. You can pre-order it now on Amazon and other major booksellers. To learn more about Mark, find his blog or his other books, visit markbeckoff.com. That's the show for this week, folks. I can't think of a better way to start a new season, and I want to thank all of you for joining us. Remember that all past episodes of Defender Radio are available at FurBearDefenders.com and on the iTunes Store. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.